Hey, everybody. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Everybody in a turkey coma? Are we all here today? Well, as we've said, you know, at the start of the service and all throughout, uh, today is Advent. It's the day that marks uh, kind of the first day of the church calendar. And it's my favorite time of the year. I love all of the lights, all of the decorations. Now, don't get me wrong, Easter is the most significant day in the history of the world. But there is something about all of the, uh, the sights, the, the scents, all of the, the decorations and the things that are going on around Christmas. The fact that it's, you know, we have these lights going on at the time of year when it is darkest. It just kind of reminds us of the light of the world giving hope to us. The word Advent itself means arrival. And it's the time of year we join with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds in breaking away from the ordinary rhythm of our days to step into a new way of keeping time, to step into this season where we remember and chase after the hope that we confess in the creeds of the church that in Jesus, God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, came to be Emmanuel, God with us in the person of Jesus. He's the king that the world has been waiting for. And I have to say, maybe more than any other uh, Christmas in recent memory, I am aware of the wisdom of the church in placing uh, this season and rooting all of the, the liturgy and the words and the prayers of this season in looking not just back on the birth of the king who came but looking forward into the return. So it's not just about the fact that the king who, whose arrival initially changed everything, but it's also about the king who is coming again to restore everything, to make all things new. And as I said a few weeks ago, as we're starting off, as we started out uh, with the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't go through the birth story. And so this year, we're going to journey toward Christmas by looking through a section of Matthew's gospel with the Magi who chased their own hopes to find a Savior. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. And now, God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would come upon us, that we would hear in these words a word that can only come from you. One who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name we pray. Amen. All right, Christmas is on a Saturday this year, which means you get a little extra time. You get almost five weeks to get everything ready. And depending on your bent, uh, some of you have already got Christmas music going in the house, right? Some of you have already got your tree up, you've already got the lights out, you are ready to go. Some of you, you know, have already done all of your Christmas shopping, you no longer have, you know, your, 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 your lists to go over, you were there door busting on Black Friday, you had it all. 
Is that something that people still do? Black Friday? I was just making sure. I don't know. Everything's online these days. Other of us, you know, we like to prepare in different sort of ways. Uh, I was telling our staff earlier that for me, the Christmas season doesn't actually begin until I hear a certain song on the radio. Uh, anybody else like that? Any of you want to guess what that song for me is? All I want for Christmas is you. You know, somebody said that in the last service. I'm not, no, that's not it. Feliz Navidad. That's my son's. Yeah, he loves that one. Yeah. That's it. Last Christmas by Wham. Yep. And now I can feel you all judging me at the same time. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we all have our own ways of marking time, right? Now, now others of you, you can still tell yourself that you're going to get everything in order for Christmas this year. You're going to stay ahead of, of all the Christmas shopping. You're going to get everything done. You're going to get all of the, the, the trees you know, trimmed out. You're going to get all of the cards sent, maybe even a couple to our mission partners overseas. Uh, you've got those lists of parties out on the calendar. Maybe you have all of those details nailed down and your house is running as smoothly as Santa's workshop, right? But then the question becomes, how are you going to do all of that and still get ready for Christmas? Now, the truth is it doesn't really matter how busy you are in the weeks ahead because you're not going to be able to escape that sense of longing that emerges from the soul, like that, that compass needle that pulls at your heart during Christmas time. That sense of, of longing and, and that the, the, all of the, the nostalgia and the, the things that pull like gravity at you. They're just going to come at you during Christmas. And maybe the best way that you can prepare is by leaning into that longing as you await the arrival of the king. Now, some of you might try really hard to kind of use all of those activities as a way to kind of numb yourself from really feeling that weight of all of your hopes and longing. And it's easy enough to do. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. We actually had to kind of pare down a little bit this year as we started to mark out the calendar of all the things going on at church. We're like, let's scale it back a bit so people can actually rest. But try as you might, somehow, the lights, the wreaths, the music, the decorations around town, you're no match for them. They're going to have this way of just allowing those longings to come pressing through into your heart. Even if church isn't your thing, even if, you know, the word Advent sounds weird to you, even if the idea of a virgin birth or of dudes chasing after a star sounds like so much superstition, you can't really escape it because everything in our culture points toward the longing of the season. Even the most secular person in the most post-Christian city in the West is going to stop and wonder what the world would look like if peace on earth and goodwill toward men actually came breaking in from heaven into a world that is frantically trying to build these things on its own terms. Even in the shops, as you go around and all the, the words to the carols are changed to kind of empty them of any sort of spiritual content, the music is going to come sneaking into your heart. 
And who of us can resist you know, raising a candle on Christmas Eve as we sing Silent Nights? No, hope, it just comes crashing in, relentless as grace around Advent time. The capacity for hope is actually one of the most astonishing things that God has knit into the human soul. We, we've talked about it a bit. We've even gone so far as to stake uh, you know, our claim that as a church, we are rooted in hope. But one of the pitfalls that comes with hope is that when we tie it to our circumstances, uh, we tend to put a lot of stock in the nexts in our lives. At the end of every baseball season, if your team doesn't win, we always say, well, there will be next season. Now, I know none of you in this room know what that's like. But then when it happens, there's that moment of euphoria, right? And it lasts for a while, maybe even a couple of weeks. Just after Christmas, we have New Year's Day, the turn of the calendar, and this whole sense of possibility that opens up as we see all of the blank spaces before us. We we hope for and we, we search for a resolution that sticks. This time when we're going to see some real change in our lives and by God's grace, maybe even some change in the world. And we search for and we hold out for that hope until we can finally find the thing in which all of our searching ends and our hearts will find rest. Uh, the last few days, I spent uh, the Thanksgiving holiday at my mother-in-law's house, and with the help of my wife and my uh, sister-in-law and my niece, I did a bit of deep sociological research. I was immersed in this whole world, this cultural juggernaut that is the Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> now... These movies take a little bit of flack for being unoriginal. But I will tell you, there is, a little bit of, there is a little bit of variety here. Sometimes the white girl in red stands to the left of the dude in green, right? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, turns out, you know, that there is this, uh, this, this whole industry booming from it. Um, I don't think I'd ever sat for one before, but over the last four days, I think I saw like a million. Three, okay, three. But it felt like the same thing over and over again. Turns out there were a lot of CEOs uh, turned beekeepers out in the country, and they, <laughs> they, they bump into this, this woman who's this high-powered attorney in New York, but what she really wants to do is open a pottery studio. And then all you need is a little bit of snow, some flirty montage of decorating a Christmas tree, and bam, you have hope born. Over and over the story goes. Two people falling in love. They found the one that they're hoping for, where they can stop and they can rest in each other's love. And the thing is, we watch the same plot over and over because it's all about hope and the fulfilling of, of our desires and about longing, but they're just a glimpse. They're just a glimpse of that hope and longing, so we have to keep watching the same plot over and over again. And in the real world, we know that the experiences that we have of love at best orients our hearts toward the deeper love and longing that we have for the deeper rest that our souls were made for. 
And we tend to see our longings most clearly when it comes up against our limitations. Even the best marriages experience limitations. Um, even the ones who have been together for you know, 60, 70, 80 years, and they love each other more at the end of those 80 years than they did at the beginning. Even those marriages are marked by limitations. In fact, I usually tell premarital couples when I'm doing counseling with them to schedule at least one more session for six months after the wedding because by then, you will have realized, if you didn't realize before, that you married a human being who has limitations. And probably by then, hopefully, you will have discovered some of your own. And it's going to be six months or less for sure that the shine wears off on all of the Christmas presents that we look forward to opening in a few weeks from now. The average New Year's resolution lasts 32 days. And then the search goes on and on again. And we can place our hope in all kinds of things for a while, but in the end, the story is always the same. No created thing can hold the weight of all of our longings. I read a story from the Scottish paper, The Guardian, this week that said it best. I'm a therapist to the super rich. They are all as miserable as the TV show Succession makes out. As created beings, our hearts will only find their home when they are oriented toward the Creator. And until we allow the Spirit to orient our hearts toward the God who in Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us, none of our relationships can be the place in which our hopes and longings are met. They just can't bear the weight of it. Our families, the people we look up to, even the most cherished relationships that we have are all marked by limitations. They're all with limited creatures, which means it's not their job to give us hope. It's not their job to make us happy. And if we look for them for that to happen, it means that we're never going to receive them as the gifts that they are to us. And ironically, it's only when we direct all of that longing in our hearts toward God that we are able to love others deeply and well, that we're able to receive them as God's gifts to us, that we're able to see them as a necessary gift to us. And so it is that the only way that we can love our neighbor as ourselves is if we first love God. That's the only way we can receive them as gifts, and that's Maybe that's the only reason worth going through all of the pantomime around Christmas because nothing will be right. There will be no peace on earth. There will be no goodwill toward men until we solve the longing we have deep in our souls for God to be with us, the only one who can meet us in the place of our deepest hope. Now, at the time that Jesus was born, there was a whole lot of expectancy about uh, the air was actually thick with longing. The people of Israel were just desperate to place their, their hope in someone, in something. And the people had been waiting for this new king who would come, who would set the world to rights. The Jewish historian Josephus, from whom we know an awful lot about the first century, said that messianic, messianic expectations had reached a fever pitch among the people of Israel around the time that Jesus was born. But it wasn't a hope that was unique to Israel. There's actually a little uh, greatest hits of history or from around the first century that the Roman historians Suetonus and Tacitus, they described this commonly held belief that someone was currently being born who was going to unite the whole world into a common empire. 
Around the same time, the philosopher Seneca wrote about how people would make this pilgrimage to Athens in the hope of finding a new philosopher king in the mold of Plato to come and lead them into a new golden age. And the poet Virgil described this golden age of humanity that was just around the corner, just above the horizon, in which a savior would be born, would come of age, would take on divinity and rule the nations with peace and justice. So to sum that up, writers from Asia, from Persia, from Rome, from Greece, and from Israel, all around the same time, shared in this hope that somehow, somewhere, a new Savior King would be born, and that those who were truly, truly wise would go all about their lives seeking Him out. So maybe it doesn't really stagger the imagination a whole lot to think that there were these three wise men, or however many they were from the East, chasing after the hope of this new king, following a star as far as Jerusalem until they got lost on the way. Matthew's description of the Magi, as he calls them, it's not very detailed, but there are a couple of assumptions that we can make, and biblical scholars have done a bit of digging on this, and one of them, Dale Bruner, notes that they were most likely scholars of the stars from Persia, from Babylonia. And N.T. Wright adds that it wasn't all that uncommon for ancients to look for patterns and disruptions in the stars. After all, Polaris, you know, the North Star, it's in its fixed place. And all the other uh, planets and constellations, they move around in their courses as predictable as they come. And at the heart of the ancient study of the stars was this conviction that everything in heaven and earth was connected, that, that everything was all of one piece, and so that if you saw something new or something amazing happening out in the stars, it would be reflected on earth and vice versa. And so the appearance of this new star on the horizon was nothing less than God breaking into the world. And so, yeah, you'd want to go see what it was all about. And if these philosopher kings were from Persia, they probably would have had some familiarity with the Hebrew scriptures. They would have had some, some knowledge because the people of Israel spent their time in captivity when Nebuchadnezzar carried them away. And among those scripture passages, you find things like this in Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Or Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen among you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Or Psalm 87, 4, I will include Egypt and Babylonia when I list the nations that obey me. And with all that hanging around in the background, maybe it's not so crazy to imagine that these men would have searched out the, in, in chasing their hope to find a new king. No, what's amazing is that Matthew would include them at all. Because these were Gentiles. And worse than that, they were astrologers who to, to Israelites would have smacked of so much paganism. And so it actually creates a little bit of a theological problem for Matthew that the first ones that God reveals his son to are not the religious sages who are steeped in the Torah, but instead they are pagans who are only able to catch a glimpse of God's grace by staring up into the skies. 
As a confessing church pastor, Julius Schweinlin wrote, Every expectation is fulfilled in Jesus, not only that of the Old Testament, but also the expectation of the whole natural world as well. Here is the King in whom all waits. And so the meaning behind the Magi, the meaning behind the star, is that here is the place where all of your hopes and your longings are met. It's what every heart is searching for. But the story isn't believable because of a history lesson. It's not believable because of a few verses of Scripture. It's believable because you and I are chasing after the same thing. We're all looking for a place we can hang our hopes. We've all spent a lifetime chasing our hopes, pinning our longings onto a star in all kinds of different ways. And more often than not, the hopes that we have chased have followed the same predictable pattern of orbiting around this, this, this constellation of longing and disappointment and hope and disillusionment, wondering if things are ever really going to change, wondering if anyone can change, wondering who will be the one to come and save me. And after a while, you start to wonder if you've spent too much time searching and you start to think, well, maybe it's just time to to settle down or to change my expectations, to lower them a bit, to just greet life as it is. But then those longings, they they just get stirred up again. And like these men seeking out from the east, we ask ourselves, where is the king? Where is the place where I can find hope? Well, the thing about Advent, coming as it does just a few weeks before Christmas, is that it's not enough to hear that Jesus was born. We need to know that Jesus is coming. The wise men, they go out to see him for themselves. They, they go out to experience his presence. The, they bring the best of who they are. They bring the best of what they are. In short, they come to worship. After all, Herod, he hears the same news. But he misses out on the miracle altogether. There are all kinds of ways that we hear about Jesus, but how often do we actually step out of our way to meet him? How often do we expect to see him? I don't know what you're looking for at Christmas. I don't know what's on your Christmas list. Maybe peace on earth is a little bit too much to ask. Maybe you just settle for a little bit of peace around the dinner table for a night. Well, your longing won't be solved by hearing the story again. After all, how many Advent sermons have you heard at this point? turns out there aren't any new characters in the pageant to introduce this year. It's the same story. It's predictable as a Hallmark movie. You know the story. But maybe what's different is that you can join in the story. You can chase after hope like the wise men. You can worship the one in whom all your longings meet. But I got to tell you, you won't worship what your heart isn't aiming for. And that's why we have been given this season to prepare our hearts to help us to worship rightly. 
All of the run-up to Christmas, it's designed to help us see. It's why we have put together an Advent calendar of sorts. It's why we have put together a, a daily devotional that you can grab online. It's why we light these candles. It's why we gather together. It's why we hang the greens, why we put up the ornaments, why we do all of that, because we are all chasing after a star in the hope of seeing the Savior for ourselves. And here's the thing. In order to see... You're going to have to be active in all of this worship. It won't do to just sit by and hear the story again. You need to be drawn into it. Otherwise, your worship is just going to be more busyness. You've got to enter in with a posture of expectancy. To let this familiar story tell your story this year. And by the power of the Spirit to lead you to the place where every hope, where every longing is met. Friends, may it be so with us. Let us pray. Almighty God, in your grace, you seek us out while we are frantically searching about for all the things that cannot hold the weight of our longing. And yet still, you are the one who is God with us. Drawing us to your presence. Leading us to your heart. Father, we ask one thing this Christmas. May we see you. May our hope not be disappointed. We ask this in the name of the one who bears all of our hopes and all of our longings, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, as we come to the table, we come as a people who acknowledge the fact that we chase after all those things which do not satisfy. And so we come in a posture of confession knowing that the one we confess to is gracious to us, who longs to hear our prayers and longs to be with us. So please join me in our prayer of confession. Merciful God, you have led us along paths of righteousness, but we continually choose to go our own way. Forgive us for our wayward hearts. Merciful God, in the coming of Jesus, you have shown us the light, but we often prefer darkness. Heal us of our blindness. Merciful God, you have called us to embody the beauty of the gospel but we too often fail to reflect your love and mercy to our family, our community, and our world. Enable us to love others as you have loved us. Merciful God, forgive us Renew us and sing your grace to our hearts afresh this morning.
We pray for the glory of Jesus, who is the light of the world. Amen. Friends, now hear the good news of God's grace. From our Lord Jesus himself, as recorded by the Apostle John. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Beloved, in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Now, having heard the word proclaimed and having been assured of our forgiveness of sins, we come to the table, to the place where we see God's love poured out for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us in giving of himself. Friends, as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We are reminded at this table how Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And when he had given thanks for the meal, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat, all of you. And when you do, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my blood, the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. Friends, this is a mystery of our faith, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is present in this meal. So as we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. As we come to communion, we'll be forming two lines down the center aisle where the communion servers come. And friends, there are two types of... There's juice on the outer ring. It's clear, so you can't mistake it. And on the inner ring, there's wine. We also have gluten-free crackers available, but if you'd also like the... That was my fault, really, not Mike's. It was rather precariously hanging there. There are also elements in the back of, of the room, should you so choose. But friends, now come. The table has been set and all has been made ready. <laughs> 